Uh, Dr. Little, have any cancer-causing agents been identified in cigarettes? No, none uh, whatever, uh, either in cigarettes or in any uh, product of smoking as such. What are the conclusions reached by your organization? That there is need for much more research over a wide area, and in my opinion, to single out smoking as a causal agent is on the evidence to date completely unjustified. <laughs> In 1952, Dr. Richard Dahl published a groundbreaking study in the UK. It linked smoking to lung cancer. Here he is much later in life talking about those early days of research and how that research was received. The media were, of course, against us for a long time. Uh, and whenever they announced a new observation on the harmful effects of smoking, it's likely it's not there. The man announced it would be smoking a cigarette, or they would have someone else get up from the tobacco industry and say, well, it's controversial, somebody else doesn't believe it. The following year in the U.S., Dr. Ernst Winder showed another devastating link between tobacco and cancer. Winder and his team painted tobacco tars from cigarette smoke onto the backs of mice. 44% of the lab animals developed malignant tumors. According to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. There was me thinking the medical establishment was anti-cancer. It would take nearly 20 years before those sorts of ads were banned. But the tobacco industry's campaign to discredit the science on smoking and cancer showed no signs of stopping. In a lot of ways, this is a well-known story. Plenty of folks have seen The Insider. You go public and 30 million people hear what you gotta say. Nothing, I mean nothing, will ever be the same again. Now the work we did here is confidential, not for public scrutiny, any more than our one's family matters. We're very serious about protecting our interests. And some know about the shady scientists who work for tobacco and went on to work for the oil industry, thanks to the work of Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway and their book, The Merchants of Doubt. The important thing that we thought we had discovered in our research, the thing we thought people needed to understand, was that actually the roots of the story are not found in the fossil fuel industry, they're found in the tobacco industry. And in fact, there, was a, there is a direct connection between climate change denial and the denial of the harms of tobacco in the, in the actual person of this man, Frederick Seitz, who was the founding director of the George C. Marshall Institute, but also worked for six years as the director of biomedical research for the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company. But we're going to explore a lesser-known side of the story today, the PR guy who developed the industry's spin on science a rather unassuming dude who wore navy suits and tiny little specks and would seem right at home speaking at the weekly Rotary Club meeting in Columbus, Ohio. The silent but deadly John Hill. Even his name is sort of forgettable, but his impact was decidedly not. Welcome back to Rit, the story of disinformation, a podcast about the war for hearts and minds and science right here on U.S. soil. I'm Amy Westervelt. Today's trick, science denial. This is Dan Ziegart. I have been for most of my life an uh, investigative reporter. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I wrote a book 
uh, called uh, Civil Warriors Legal Siege on the Tobacco Industry. After Civil Warriors, Zegar kept researching tobacco's efforts to sell the American public on their products. One name kept coming up. You guessed it, John W. Hill. When I was researching my, my book, um, a bunch of documents were released uh, by actually by a congressman that dealt with Hill and Knowlton's original um, uh, building of the uh, denial machine that became so well known, uh, which started in 1954. Hill and Knowlton is the firm John Hill ran with partner Don Knowlton. But Hill wasn't always in PR. John Hill was born on a farm in Indiana in 1890. His grandfather had been very wealthy, but his father lost all the family's money in a series of business deals gone wrong. And Hill would spend the rest of his life chasing the company and approval of rich men. You could say he had sugar daddy issues. Like a lot of our other PR guys, he started his career as a journalist before he turned to the dark side. But unlike the others, he seems to have been fairly good at it. Hill was a financial and business reporter for 17 years before he got into the PR game. He even started a couple of newspapers himself, although he struggled to keep them afloat. Some things never change. In 1920, in Ohio, he took his first step into the PR world when he was hired to create a newsletter for Cleveland's Union Trust Company, a bank. By this time, he was the financial editor of a steel industry trade magazine because Ohio. These jobs put him in regular contact with executives around town, and eventually Hill saw a niche he could fill helping companies explain themselves to reporters who didn't get the steel industry. In other words, they didn't think capitalism was freaking awesome. Hill opened up his own firm in 1927 with Union Trust and Otis Steel as his first clients. Because Hill was well-liked by local executives, word spread fast. Within a couple months, he was doing PR for United Alloy Steel, Republic Steel, and Standard Oil of Ohio. In 1953, Hill was tapped to help another industry struggling to maintain a good relationship with the public, tobacco. Here's Dan Ziegert again, reading from a chapter of his as-yet-unpublished but copyrighted book, Addiction Incorporated. John W. Hill, the founder of the public relations giant Hill & Knowlton, had just walked into his office on the 35th floor of the Empire State Building when he got an emergency call from Tommy Ross, who handled public relations for the American Tobacco Company. Public relations was a new and still small business at mid-century. Hill and Ross sought each other's advice and met occasionally at watering holes in midtown Manhattan. So Hill wasn't really talking to a competitor on the morning of December 14th, 1953. Ross painted a startling picture. At this moment, he said, the chief executives of six of the seven major tobacco companies are in a suite at the Plaza Hotel on 59th Street trying to figure out how to stave off the collapse of their industry. 
It had started two weeks earlier with the release of a sensational study by a scientist at the Sloan Kettering Institute that found cigarette tar produced cancerous lesions in mice. The latest in a series of ominous findings over the previous four years, strongly linking cigarette smoking with lung cancer. And just six days before Ross's call, on December 8th, Dr. Alton Oxner, a thoracic surgeon and pioneer lung cancer researcher, gave a speech in New York in which he said that, quote, the male population of the United States will be decimated unless some steps are taken to remove the cancer-producing factor from cigarettes, close quote. Tobacco stocks dropped four points. After decades of continuous growth, cigarette sales began a steep decline. Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DRILLED. Hill met with those panicked executives in their suite at the plaza the next morning. Later, he wrote in his autobiography, quote, After being admitted to their suite, I found the tobacco men sitting there looking mighty glum. I thought, here is a group of men who consider themselves good, upright citizens, being held up before the country as killers. Hill came up with a genius strategy to help them. The tobacco execs wanted him to deliver a pro-cigarette campaign that would discredit the recent studies, but Hill advised them that that wasn't enough. They also needed to fund new scientific research that would contradict the studies connecting smoking to cancer. This was a much bigger project than just running a PR campaign and a new tactic for an industry on the edge of a public opinion precipice. The exec said, okay, and a few weeks later, the Tobacco Industry Research Committee, TURC, was born. 
Now, fake experts weren't new, we know this. Even fake research institutes existed before John W. Hill. You might remember the Bureau of Railroad Economics from episode one, created by massacre rebrander and train nerd Ivy Lee all the way back in 1890. But John Hill was going to take fake expertise to a whole new level. The Tobacco Industry Research Committee never claimed to be independent, but their research was taken seriously, even by the most legit journalists of the day, Edward R. Murrow himself. When I first heard this story, I was not shocked exactly because it's the sort of thing that you still kind of see today, but surprised that it happened way back then. And to Murrow himself. So I called up Mary Anais Hegler, a writer and my frequent partner in podcasting. The long-standing idea in science, and it's still very much the case today, is that if you are good at communicating, you must be bad at science. <laughs> I will never understand the logic of that. No matter how many times you tell me that story, it's never going to make any kind of sense. It doesn't, right? It really, it really doesn't. But anyway, it's very much a thing in the scientific field. So on top of the fact that they're training these scientists to be very good speakers, they also know that that the scientists on the other side are are not going to be getting this training and are probably going to be bad at communicating the science that they're doing. So um, in 19, <laughs> right? They're playing chess and we're over here playing tic-tac-toe. That's right. So in 1955, uh, Edward R. Murrow, who's like a very well-regarded journalist, there's a radio award named after him, mm-hmm. all of this stuff. He has this- new- I've heard of the fellow. Yes, yes. He has this <laughs> TV show um, where he does, you know, it's like very, um, you know, he's like tackling the hard-hitting news of the day, all that kind of stuff. And so he decides right. to do a two-part series on- Um, this new research about smoking and cancer. And he has on all of these like, you know, legit, all the researchers who have been doing the work showing the link between cigarettes and cancer. And then he has on a bunch of people from the tobacco um, industry research committee. And the tobacco guys, again, like all are very well-spoken. Murrow, like, like, spent more time talking to the tobacco funded researchers in part Mm -hmm. because like the interview was going better. Right. This is really key to understanding the genius of science denial, both the bias toward people who are media trained, who do a good job of presenting their case, their story, their point of view to the media. That bias is still very entrenched, particularly on TV and radio. But then also the bias against being good at those things if you're a scientist, which is a really big problem when the public needs to understand science and a very easy thing for industry to weaponize. Here's Dan Zieger with more of the tobacco story. And the industry had gone out way out on a limb and said that it was not it was not only going to be vigilant, but if it found something that uh, was in cigarettes that caused cancer, that would, you know, it would halt uh, stop everything and take very dramatic action and make sure that it was removed. So that was the standard that they had set themselves. But the thing was that when Murrow went out and did it and went out and, and actually he had very little to do with finding the, he himself, 
who was you know probably the preeminent figure at that point in television journalism, had very little to do with actually picking the uh, people who were interviewed. The scientists who were interviewed were mostly picked by Fred Friendly, who was his producer. These were eminent people. These were Elmer Hess, who was the president of the American Medical Association. It was W.C. Huper, who was uh, an important figure at the National Cancer Institute. It was Dr. Paul Coton, who was an environmental cancer uh, specialist out in uh, Los Angeles. And all of these guys were, in one way or another, um, compromised by the industry. They had taken, either they were already on the payroll, or in the case of Coton, uh, were actually members of the Tobacco Industry Research Council, which was this front group they had set up. Here's a snippet from the two-part series Murrow did about cigarettes and cancer on his show Seeing Now in 1955. Filtered tips represented less than 2% of the total in 1952. In 1955, more than 20% are filter tips, and the figure is rising. There is a clear indication that the relationship between cigarettes and health has caused this change. The cigarette industry, aware of this fact, and fully cognizant of its responsibility, has organized the Tobacco Industry Research Committee. Its scientific director is the eminent cancer investigator, Dr. Clarence Cook Little, head of the Jackson Memorial Laboratory at Bar Harbor, Maine. Uh, Dr. Little, have any cancer-causing agents been identified in cigarettes? No, none uh, whatever, uh, either in cigarettes or in any uh, product of smoking as such. Uh, this is interesting in a way because there are many known cancer-forming substances in tar. Uh, it is interesting that uh, certain of the published data uh, seem to show an association between uh, certain types of cancer, or perhaps cancer in general, and excessive use of cigarettes. Now, we're very interested in finding out what kind of people are heavy smokers and what kind are not. Uh, not everybody is uh, a smoker. Not everybody who smokes is uh, equally heavy smoker. And uh, what determines these selections on the part of people? Uh, is it a different nervous type of person? that smokes a great deal? Is it a person who is reacting differently to strain or stress? Because it is very clear that certain people just can't, can't take it as well as others. I mean, if you can separate yourself from, from like how awful it is, it's very smart. It's like, like this guy is being asked, is there any correlation between um, smoking and cancer. And then he kind of goes like, well, you know, what about the other causes of cancer? Certain types of people who are very anxious types of people might not handle cigarettes as well as other types of people. That's uh, diabolical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dan Ziegert again. But if you looked a little deeper, you, you found was every single one of these guys was had essentially either been been bought and paid for and was on the staff or was about to be and those relationships were not disclosed fully some of the people uh were not on the yet actually working for the turk but they were about to be or they were already had a relationship um, and were carefully selected by the industry to be put forward the point here is that 
you know, these were eminent people. And actually, when Fred Friendly uh, got a call from one of the tobacco guys and they asked him, well, how is it going? How's your program going with Murrow? And he said, it's going pretty well. But if anything, I think it's going to make the it's going to make the tobacco industry look better than these scientists, because your people are better at explaining. They're more definite. And of course, this is what is possible to be more definite when you are really espousing a particular point of view and you're a paid mouthpiece. Uh, and that's the great advantage that these guys have always had, this particular uh, wing of the scientific community. The tobacco industry scientists weren't just definitive because they had an opinion. They also had the benefit of Hill and Knowlton's media training. Hill and Knowlton put these people through their paces, particularly Clarence uh, Dr. Clarence Cook Little, who they spent weeks and weeks uh, with getting him ready and talking to him and just trying to understand how he was going to come off. Uh, as time went on, the industry got even better at grooming people and went to great lengths to woo scientists to get them to do a research project for them. This strategy worked great for decades. The result of this whole campaign by tobacco was that it was completely effective. They found, as they looked, they, there is a great deal of material on this in the tobacco files, um, in the documents that are found that you can find that were produced in the lawsuits, where they go back and they say, there's very, very little in the way of interest now in smoking and health. This is 18 months after the tobacco uh, broadcast by Murrow. So they, it's amazing because this is a, re, a very small group of people, a few scientists, right. some public relations, uh, public relations firm, you know, and a handful of companies. And they completely change the public dialogue about the most pressing health concern, probably of the 20th century, which was smoking, the pandemic. And that's not right. an exaggeration of smoking related illnesses, millions of people a year worldwide. There are a couple things to pay attention to in this story about Hill, the Tobacco Industry Research Committee, and Murrow. The first is that while this tactic is generally referred to as science denial, it's also misdirection. The tobacco industry folks did deny certain scientific facts, or at least cast doubt on them. But what really made this multi-decade campaign work was the way they obscured the link between cigarettes and cancer by flooding the public sphere with studies on all the other causes of cancer. This is the story of PR, not comic books. But after the break, we're going to meet one of the self-described supervillains of this story. By day, a sort of average conservative public relations guy, but under the cover of darkness, Dr. Evil. More on him after the break. Another big figure in tobacco lobbying is the infamous PR guy, Richard Berman. He's so notorious that 60 Minutes once dubbed him Dr. Evil. And today he actually uses that to sell himself in proposals. Although I'm not sure where that PhD is from. Can you get funding to do a doctorate in evil? I think I'm just going to call him Mr. Evil until he can produce his degree. Just plain old dick evil. Richard Berman was once described as a, quote, 
despicable man, an exploiter, a scoundrel, a world historical motherfucking son of a bitch by his son, the late David Berman. Music fans might know that name. He was a poet and the lead singer of the band Silver Jews. But he and his father did not get along. Richard Berman was just too evil. Here he is speaking to a room full of fracking executives about how to keep the anti-fracking folks at bay. Yet you get in people's mind a tie. They don't know who's right. And you win all ties because the tie basically ensures the status quo. People are not prepared to get aggressive and moving one way or the other. So we, I'll take a tie any day if I'm trying to preserve the status quo. This tape was recorded by someone in the audience who subsequently leaked it to the New York Times, so it's pretty hard to hear. But what Berman is saying there is he'll take a tie any day if he's trying to preserve the status quo. In other words, these tactics don't have to win. They don't have to convince the public to like fracking. They just have to tie because people who aren't sure about an issue won't campaign for change. And the status quo carries on. That's the goal with campaigns like the ones Berman does and also like the one Hill cooked up for Big Tobacco. They don't need to convince people that smoking is good for them or even not bad. They just need to confuse the issue enough to stop any big changes. Maybe smoking's bad. Maybe it's fine. The science sure seems confusing. In 1964, the U.S. Surgeon General released a report that backed up the research Dahl and Winder and others had done for decades. This book, containing 387 carefully worded pages, is a federal government report. Its title, Smoking and Health, a report of the Advisory Committee to the Surgeon General of the Public Health Service. It was released at noon today, and it says, In view of the continuing and mounting evidence from many sources, It is the judgment of the committee that cigarette smoking contributes substantially to mortality from certain specific diseases and to the overall death rate. It still took another six years for the government to ban cigarette ads on TV and radio, and 25 years after that for a series of lawsuits to reveal the truth about all the research tobacco companies had suppressed— particularly with respect to how addictive nicotine was, how much they knew about that addictiveness, and how much they used that information to hook people on their product. When those lawsuits went to trial, many of the same scientists who had been trained to speak to the media turned up as witnesses. Hill and Knowlton had picked them for that very reason. We'd make very canny assessments of this person's personality, how they would play, and therefore developed a stable of people who not only would speak for, let's say, the press, but would also testify before Congress and appear in, uh, in trials as lawsuits began to be filed. These became their litigation-ready experts, and they were really formidable. They won, obviously, because they won every case that was ever filed against them uh, until 1996. That's a pretty good record. That's uh, four, 42 years. That's a pretty good record. That brings us to another key part of this story and this show. A lot of people think public relations just means media relations, getting stories in the papers, securing interviews for company execs, that kind of thing. But the people and tactics that we're talking about go way beyond that. 
Public relations guys like John W. Hill or Ivy Lee or Edward Bernays, they would call people who only deal with the media side of things press agents, and they would do it with a certain level of disdain. For them, public relations meant literally dealing with the public, or really several publics. There was the general public, and then there's also legislators. They're another public, another audience to be convinced, confused, or calmed by these arguments. Business people were a public, women, youth, mothers, employees. In the case of tobacco, Hill and Knowlton worked to improve the general public's view of the industry, but also to ingratiate the industry within the scientific community and with legislators. When the science makes your product look really bad because, you know, it causes cancer or creates superbugs or sets the ocean on fire, you need a strategy to distract people from all that. Hill's approach to science denial and distraction has been used by multiple industries in the decades since Big Tobacco had its day in court. Climate change is an obvious example. The fossil fuel industry suppresses information, hires experts and spokespeople to cast doubt on climate science, misdirects attention toward other causes of the problem, and even highlights the benefits of CO2. The scientific evidence remains inconclusive as to whether human activities affect the global climate. CO2, okay? This is gas of life. So if they want to tell you that CO2 is dangerous, you tell them to stop breathing, right? (laughs) We are changing the conversation about climate and carbon dioxide. A mild warming gas and a powerful plant food. We know the benefits of CO2. Food can be grown where it wasn't grown before. It has increased crop harvest by a third. Farmers pump it into their greenhouses to produce more food for your family. NASA satellites tell the story. CO2 has greened the globe in the last 100 years. All of those people you just heard are funded by the fossil fuel industry. The chemical industry uses this tactic often, too. Here's how a few industry spokespeople talked about the recent finding connecting glyphosate to cancer. Glyphosate is a key ingredient in the popular weed killer, Roundup. It will do no harm. No, it is not. Glyphosate is not a carcinogen, Dwayne. I do not believe that glyphosate in Argentina is causing increases in cancer. You can drink a whole quart of it and it won't hurt you. It's, yeah, uh, it, you want to drink some? We have some here. I'd be happy to, actually. But you, not, not really, but not really? I know it wouldn't hurt really? me. Roundup and glyphosate products are vital to farmers around the world, and not only large-scale farmers, but also vital to smallholder farmers. As a scientist, it's very disappointing seeing all of this misinformation about glyphosate online because it is scaring people. Misinformation is beginning to dominate this space, and I'm very concerned about the consequences that this will have for agriculture. Several pro-business groups used this tactic recently to create confusion around COVID-19. You've been brainwashed. You cannot escape God, not even with the mask or six feet. He's blowing the lid off the COVID scandal, the, the scamdemic. We have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. The cycle that we're doing is not stopping anything. It's not preventing the spread. Locking down doesn't work. Here's my evidence. I get a lot of positive calls about it. When Mary and I talked to ProPublica health reporter Caroline Chen earlier this year about covering COVID, she said she'd never had to deal with this tactic on her beat before COVID hit. 
I think that that was something that caught a lot of health journalists by surprise um, because we were, I think you were used to maybe debating over whether or not high level, there should be single payer versus private insurance, you know, like that kind of, um, you know, where you could see people line up in their camps. But both sides, I think more traditionally would be, have like reasons for those. And then all of a sudden during the pandemic, I think, Things like masks got so politicized that I felt like it was almost like completely severed from any notion of we want to see what the evidence is here. Anytime science interferes with profits, it seems, this technique shows up. Here's how to spot it. It redirects your attention, pointing to all the other causes of the problem while denying that this one product plays any role at all. It obscures the funding sources of all the studies that point out those other drivers of the problem. It suggests doubt rather than any particular conclusion. Remember, a tie is a win. The goal is confusion and thus inaction. It goes after the scientists themselves with ad hominem and personal attacks. And, as with all fake experts, the overarching message is that you shouldn't worry about whatever problem they're discussing, that the powers that be have it under control. Remember, the point of these campaigns is to make the science too confusing, to convince you that you have to understand all the details of the science to be able to make a reasonable decision or even have an opinion, and that you're really better off just leaving it to the experts to figure out. In the words of Dr. Evil, a tie, because a tie is a win when you're trying to maintain the status quo. That's it for this episode. Next week, a fun story. Why you have PR to thank for Downton Abbey. Thanks for joining us on this little tour of the dark corners of the PR laboratory. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to check out all the many horrors these twisted geniuses unleashed on the world. Rigged is an original Critical Frequency production. Lots of documents, photos, videos, and other fun facts about the wild world of PR are on our website at rigged.media. Our producer is Martin Zaltz-Ostwick. He also scored this season. Artwork is by Matthew Fleming. Our fact checker is Ashley Braun. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton of the First Amendment Project. Big thanks to Mariana East Hegler, who you'll hear throughout this season. If you want to hear more of me and Mary joking around, check out Hot Take, the show we do about climate change. Archival tape in this episode is courtesy of the Library of Congress and Vanderbilt University. The show is reported by me, Amy Westervelt. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>